Well, good to see everybody, and uh, I want to tell you up front before we begin this weekend um, that there is a really good way to apply the message that I'm about to give to you, and that is for you to get into a small group. That's not the only way for you to apply this message, but it's certainly a, um, a really good one. So at the end of the service today at all of our campuses, we are going to have um, a little thing that we call Group Link, which is the world's easiest way for you to get connected to a small group. There will be people outside of your campus that will be ready there just to connect to you. It's kind of like if you ever shop on Amazon and you know you're kind of messing around and then all of a sudden, bam, you bought it and you didn't even know it, it's in the air on the way to you. That's kind of how this is. You'll be back there and like, bam, you'll be sitting in somebody's living room saying, I love these people. So that's uh, kind of what's going to happen after this. Uh, so it's one way to apply it. Um, next week, next weekend church at the ballpark, which means one service, all of our campuses in one place at the Durham Bulls Athletic Park. What that means, if you have not put two and two together, is that wherever you're sitting right now, we're not going to be there next weekend. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I know it should make sense to you, but every year there are 50 or 60 people that show up here like, oh, I didn't know the fact that we were at the ballpark didn't mean we we're also going to be at the, um, we're not going to be here. In fact, I'm probably talking to some people now that last year, this time, this is what you did, um, right? So if you, let's just think of it this way. If you know somebody who is likely the kind of person fits the profile to show up here next weekend, raise your hand. Just be like, I know somebody like that. Raise your hand, put it up, put it up. Okay. All right. Will you call that person this week and say, hey, moron, we're not going to be at our campuses this week. Come with me to church at the ballpark. If you've invited somebody to church in the last three months, Call them and say, hey, if this is the week you decided to take my invitation, come to church at the ballpark, okay? All right, and get a bunch of these things as you're leaving this uh, inviter card, and we'll plaster the triangle with them. All right, we have begun a new series through the book of Acts, so if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out now and open it to the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. We are looking together at the earliest days of the Christian movement. A couple of weeks ago, I explained to you that the church started as a movement, but over the years we have degraded it into primarily a, a building and a place where you would go for a service. I explained that you can see that in the very word we use for church. Our English word church comes from the German word Kirche, which in German meant literally a place that you went for a religious observance. But the original Greek word for church was the word ekklesia, which meant an assembly that was called out around a particular idea or around the mission. The early church was a movement around a mission. It was a body of people who were, were moving together. It was not a building. Our um, small groups pastor, Pastor Spence, um, with our small group leaders a couple weeks ago, did that um, thing. If you went in Sunday school, you remember this? Remember this whole deal? Uh, this is the church, and this is the steeple. Open the door, and there's all the... Right. And he, and he said, now that's a, a cute little heresy, um, a cute little heresy, because this is a, a building... And this is a you know, kind of outdated cultural symbol. And this is the church right here. Uh, this, this is a church. Uh, one day I, I told him I'm going to write a book called Heresies I Learned in Sunday School, and this will be one of the chapters. Uh, I have wondered, by the way, how would our kids do that in Sunday school? Like, this is the warehouse, and here's some people here, some people down here in BC South, and there's some people here in the middle that speak a different language, and there's people in Chapel Hill and, and over here in North Rock. I don't know how we do it. So we just quit doing it. Um, and it's probably a good thing because the church essentially at its core is a movement that is gathered around a mission. In fact, here's your Bible trivia for the, for, for the weekend. What came first in the book of Acts, the mission or the church? The mission. That's right. Acts 1.8 is where the mission is given. The church doesn't show up until at the end of Acts 2. I, I've heard it said this way, God doesn't have a mission for his church. God formed a church for his mission. That was the point. God wasn't looking at this group of people in the church like, now I need something for them to do. Oh, I know. Here's a mission. No, he formed the church for the purpose of the mission, which means that a church that is not on mission is not really a church. And believers who are not on mission are not really part of the church. Movements move. And if you're not moving, you're not part of the movement. So I showed you, Acts 1, that there were two things that propelled this early movement. One is they were captured by the message. And then number two, they were yielded to the Spirit. Those are two things I asked you to consider about yourself and two things to which I will return over and over and over throughout this series. Have you been captured by the message of the gospel? Not do you assent to it. I know that most of you assent to it. That's the reason you're here. But have you been captured by it? Are you consumed by it? Have you been ravished by it? And are you yielded to the Spirit? Do you know what it means to walk in the power of the Spirit? Do you even know what that phrase means? 
Do you know what it means to be moved by the Spirit, to, to, to move in His power, to fellowship with Him? Is Christianity for you, listen, be honest about this, is Christianity for you primarily a set of beliefs that you adhere to and a lifestyle you conform to, or is it a dynamic relationship with a living God who lives inside you that you live in, move in, walk in, speak under, um, live in His authority and fellowship with Him? One of my prayers, Summit, and one of my deepest hopes for this series and one of the reasons I believe that the Holy Spirit of God gave this to me for us to study over the next several months is that we, during this series, might become more of a spirit-filled church. And you guys know, I mean, you know me well, you know, I don't mean a bunch of crazy stuff by all that. We're not going to get vans with flames painted down the side, you know, and change our name to the Holy Ghost Anointed Revival, the Third Way Pentecostal Holiness Movement of the Apostles or something like that. Um, I'm not going to get a, 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 you know, a Karis mullet haircut. Uh, we're not going to rename Veronica the first lady bas- bishop at pastor, you know, Veronica. Uh, we're not going to build running lanes around the, the auditoriums, um, give out tambourines with ribbons attached to them. We're, we're not doing that. But I do believe that we are supposed to be a spirit-filled church much more than we are right now where we are filled with people who are filled with the spirit, who are living and moving in the power of the spirit. I've told you we like to call ourselves here charismatics with a seatbelt. That's us, charismatics with a seatbelt, which means when you come to this church, I want you to have a wild roller coaster ride experience with the Holy Spirit. But I want you also to do things decently in order and to keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, okay? So we're charismatics with a seatbelt. Today, what I'm going to try to show you from Acts chapter 2 is what the coming of the Spirit was like, what the coming of the Spirit was like, and then number two, what the believer's response was um, to the coming of the Spirit. So what it was like when he came, and then what their response to him was. Acts 2 verse 1. Now when the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost, by the way, was a Jewish holiday, Pentecost, it was a derivative of the number 50. Um, You see, it's 50 days after Passover. Jesus died around Passover. He ascended on the 40th day after Passover, after his death. And then so Pentecost is another 10 days after that. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, to be honest, I don't think the English there translates what the author is trying to say well. It really means a tornado. Um, a, a, a loud, disturbing, terrifying sense that something powerful was moving in the room. Have you ever been close to or in an area where a tornado came through? Uh, when I was in the 10th grade, there was one that came through um, Winston-Salem where I lived, and, and uh, I remember um, how terrifying it was. I don't know exactly how close it got to where we were, um, but I know that a friend of mine went outside to try to get something um, back in the house that he thought was going to blow away, and I remember him trying to get back up on the porch as we were literally pulling him in. It's like he was walking through cement to try to get um, him back in the house. It was terrifying. That was something like the experience that they had there as this mighty rushing wind came into this room and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and then divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, that's an amazing picture because you see in the Old Testament, anytime the presence of God showed up, it was almost always in fire, right? And so, so, so God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He led the children of Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of fire. Um, When he descended on Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments, he consumed the mountain in fire. When he descended his presence on the Holy of Holies in the temple, it was in fire. The fire was terrifying, and it was often fatal. You couldn't look at it. You couldn't touch it. You really couldn't be in its presence. And now, now it's on the heads of every believer, every believer. Every believer is a burning bush with the presence of God inside of them. And instead of dying, they're coming alive. You ever stop to think about what it means that the Spirit of God lives in you? I don't think we think about that much. This is something that would have boggled the believers in, the boggled the minds of believers in the Old Testament because this was the presence of a God. They couldn't get in the, in the presence of him because it would kill them. And now he lives inside of the believer. It's something Peter says angels long to look into, something they wish they had the experience of, but they don't. The Holy Spirit of God, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, if you're a believer, has fused himself with your soul. Paul would look at the Corinthians who thought that they didn't have much ability in ministry and didn't think much of themselves, and he'd say, don't you understand the value of the treasure that you possess in an earthen vessel? When they treated sin casually, he would say, do you not understand that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God lives in you? Do you not understand that the fire of his presence has now begun to dwell in you? Verse 4, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> Great question. That's so he explains. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, you see, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's an important phrase. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not these who are speaking all these different languages? Are they not all Galileans? Aren't these, you know, all people from the same place? They're not world travelers. They've all in this little backwoods part of Israel, right? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the megalela, the megalela, which translated the mighty works of God. In other words, the gospel. Now you say, well, okay, speaking in tongues, that means Pentecostalism. Yes, but, but no. Um, these tongues were other human languages. They were unknown to the speaker, but what was happening is the speaker was saying things he did not understand. Somebody else from another part of the world is like, hey, I understand what you're saying. You're speaking without an accent. You're speaking fluently in the tongue that I was raised in and you were telling me about Jesus. Listen to this. The first time the gospel was preached, it was preached in all languages simultaneously. The first time the gospel was preached, it was preached in all languages simultaneously. Do you realize the significance of that? You realize the significance of that? Let me try to explain to you. Listening to Tim Keller teaching this passage, and he quoted from Lamin Sané, who is an African professor at Yale University. And Sané said that Muslims, and Sané used to himself be a Muslim, he said that Muslims will quickly tell you that the Quran cannot be translated. And that's true. The, the Quran, they think, cannot be translated. You say, well, I've seen an English translation of the Quran. No, they would not call that a translation. They would call that a paraphrase because the words of God are only in Arabic. And so when you translate it, you are changing it out of the word of God. It's almost like a commentary. As far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. So if you want to hear God's word, you got to learn Arabic. And when Islam comes into a, a place, it slowly replaces the culture with its own culture. And so places that become Islamic become very quickly Arabic. When the gospel was first preached, however, the first time it was preached, it was preached in all languages at once showing that no culture was the right one. No culture was the dominant one. And thus, when the gospel goes into a place, it doesn't erase the culture, it redeems the culture. It doesn't suppress the culture, it exalts and lifts up and brings out the culture, the true version of the culture. Sané, this Yale professor, said that no other religion really does that. Other religions tend to erase the cultures. He said, and listen to this, as a professor at Yale University, I see that it's not just other religions that do that, secularism does it too. Listen, for all of their talk of diversity, Harvard and Yale are interested in producing only different colored European liberals. He said they, they think of diversity in terms of food and dress, like, oh, isn't that cute, the way you dress and the whole food thing. We want diversity, why don't you do that? He's like, but as far as the mindset, the worldview goes, you got to convert to their worldview. For example, he said, the average African sees a very spiritual side to the world. But when the African goes to Yale, he is told that the world has no spirits and miracles, and Yale guts him of his Africanness. Christianity, he says, helps Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Christianity accepts the reality of the spirit world, but removes. He said the tendency in African culture is towards superstition and violence because it shows Christ as the victor over all evil spirits and he overcame through love and service, not violence and manipulation. He said, so whereas other things would suppress the culture, Christianity redeems it. Yes, it purifies it, but it exalts it as something that God created different to bring glory to him. That's what Pentecost meant, is that no culture was the right or the dominant one. And for some and for us, that means that no one culture's emphases or personality, or worship styles are normative for everybody. You know, in the culture that I grew up in, if you wanted to show devotion to God, then you put a suit on on Sunday because that was giving God your Sunday best. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a very valid expression. And your preacher would stand up, and for 50 minutes, he would expound to you the nuances of Greek words. Because if you really want to know the words of God, you got to get down into the minutia of it. That's a perfectly valid way to show devotion to God. But you know what? It's wrong when you start thinking that is the way that every culture is supposed to show devotion to God. And if they're devoted to God, they're going to listen to sermons like that too. 
God made other cultures differently, gave them different personalities. Some of them are much more emotional and expressive. And so we have to understand that when God chose to redeem the world, he did so not through one culture or one personality. He did it through a multiplicity of them. And if we're a spirit-filled church, that means there's going to be multiple ways and personalities and, and ways that people speak and ways that they worship God. And I think we got to become much more open to that than we really are. And I think we, you got to quit looking at people who don't do it like you. Like, what's wrong with them? I got to, you know, well, you know, you were loud today and you were talking about it. No. That's just how God, God gave them that as a way. It's bringing glory to you. I don't want to suppress that. I want to rejoice in that because that's the glory of God. God said, first time, all languages at once. Because there's an internal humility in a spirit-filled Christian because you understand that God shows the diversity of cultures as a way to bring glory to himself in the church. And we need more openness on that. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's 9 a.m. because they counted it from six. <laughs> He's like, they're not drunk yet. But Peter probably should have known that doesn't stop everybody, all right? <laughs> you know who you are. Had your breakfast beer this morning, all right? But... All right, but he says, hey, they're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but in the Old Testament, to be a prophet was a big deal. And what he's saying is that which was reserved for heroes in the Old Testament has become the standard fare for every believer in the New our sons and our daughters and us and old men, all ranges are going to speak the words of God. Not in the sense that we're writing the Bible the way that Isaiah did or Ezekiel did, but it means that the spirit of God that was on them to speak prophetically is now in every believer. And every believer is one who speaks in the power of the spirit, the words of God to others. Well, Peter goes on and from there and he preaches a sermon about who Jesus is, which I'm going to preach to you next week at the church at the ballpark. But at the end of his sermon, people call out, Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and receive Jesus as your Savior and be baptized as a sign of that. And 3,000 people respond, which had to be a logistical nightmare. Um, Danny Franks, who heads our baptism team next week, has been complaining faithfully for the last two weeks about how hard his job is. And I just open up Acts 2, and I'm like, right here, baby. He didn't, Peter did not give them any, any advance warning. He's like, hey, there's 3,000 people waiting right there to be baptized. You guys need to find a pool. And uh, they didn't have black shorts or black shirts or any of that kind of stuff. Um, 3,000 people at one time, the first sermon. By the way, the number 3,000 is very significant. Um, you see, when the law was given, when the fire of God came on outside and the law was given, 3,000 people died because they couldn't keep the law. So now when the Spirit of God is given and that fire comes, 3,000 people come alive. Why? Because Jesus has already died in their place for the breaking of the law. Because the fire of God's wrath was absorbed into him, the fire of God's presence and the fire of God's love and the fire of a new life now becomes the ownership of the believer in Christ. It's a whole new day that God has started. It is a fire of redemption and a fire of power. All right, jump down to verse 42. So they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to, and he's going to give you four things. All right, the movement of that spirit, listen, the movement of that spirit, that mighty wind, manifested itself in four devotions in their lives. Devoted means they gave themselves to these things. In light of the gospel and the spirit, these things became obsessions to them. They were devoted to them. And what I want to try to show you is that if you've really embraced the gospel and if you've been filled with the, by the Spirit, these will be four devotions for you. There'll be four obsessions for you. Not because I tell you, not because you put them on a to-do list. They're just natural. In fact, if you are not naturally devoted to these things, I don't need you to make a list and go start doing them. They just reflect the fact that you've never really embraced the gospel and you've never really been filled by the Spirit. Because people who have done those things, naturally become devoted to these things. It's just as natural to them as breathing. If you don't do these things, it's not a doing problem you got. It's a gospel problem and a spirit problem. So we got to make sure that we correct the right thing here, okay? So four things that spirit-filled people devote themselves to without having to be told and without hearing sermons. Here we go. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first thing he mentioned. They devoured what was being taught. 
You see, Christianity taught that salvation was a gift from heaven, that it came from outside of you. Right? That's why the wind comes from the outside, not from within. Uh, the, the fire comes from outside of them and dwells on top of them. It doesn't come from inside of them. So you have to get the teaching and the words of God that are coming from the outside, the apostles' teaching. You have to get them inside of you. Now, our world says the opposite, does it not? It says that the problem with you is you've got too many bad things on the outside that have conformed you into a certain way, and you've got to get down to the inner beauty that is you. You've got to discover yourself. Right? You've got to figure out how to manage your problems so that the inner child or the inner beautiful part of you just comes out. That was um, a New York Times article recently written by a psychologist who was lamenting how fewer and fewer people are coming to therapy, at least certain kinds of therapy. And the psychologist who wrote the article said this, listen, fewer and fewer people today come in saying, I need to change. What I see is more and more people wanting someone or something else to change. So my pitch went from, I treat people with depression and anxiety to, are you having trouble with difficult people in your life? Maybe I can help. And do you catch that change? Christianity says, nope, fundamental problem is you. You're the problem. Yeah, the reason you're unhappy, and I know this is going to offend some of you, but the reason you're unhappy has nothing to do with your marriage or your work situation. Those might be bad, but the reason you're unhappy has to do with a problem in your heart. There's something in your heart that is wrong. There's something in your heart that is dead. There's something in your heart that is dissatisfied. And what you need is not changes to your circumstances. What you need is a renewal of your heart. So you have to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching because that word has got to get in your heart. That is the only way that a dead heart becomes alive. It's the only way that a dysfunctional heart becomes normal. It's the only way that a heart that doesn't understand what God wants from it begins to have wisdom. Over the years, I've used this example as, um, I think, a good example of, of what I'm talking about. I've used this. If you've been at the Summit Church, every year I probably use this. But you know what? There's a lot of new people here, and so they got to hear it too. Um, I said it's like that, um, it's like that scene um, in that movie. It's like 20 years old um, that starred Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage, who is the most underrated actor of our generation, um, called The Rock. Remember this movie? And so basically the gist of the, the movie The Rock was um, that these bad guys had this green nerve gas, I guess, and they wanted to launch it into San Francisco. And so um, the, uh, you know, if you got in the presence of the green nuclear gas, it would eat your face off. And so, uh, so at the, you know, kind of the high point in the movie, Nicolas Cage, who was the hero, as of course he should be, um, takes one of these green balls of, of nerve gas and he shoves it in the mouth of the bad guy and he punches him in the face. And the ball breaks open and the green gas comes out and eats his face off. But then Nicolas Cage realizes, oh no, I'm in the presence of the green gas. So he's got to get away. So he starts to run, you know. But the green gas somehow knows where he is, so it follows him, you know. And it's 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 and he's running down. It's it's coming after him. And um, he, he gets up against this wall. And there's nowhere else to go. And here comes the green gas. And so he reaches in his backpack and he pulls out this um, needle because the only way that you could survive in the presence of the green nerve gas was if you took this serum and got it into your heart immediately. But the needle that they used to put it in was like that long. And so he pulls out this thing and he unsheaths this needle and he holds it out and it looks like he's about to stick a sword in his chest and you're watching the movie you're like, no, you know, just die. It's going to be better if you die. And uh, he takes the thing and he shoves it in his heart. He shoves the antidote in and then he's fine. And basically the movie ends there. Um, spoiler alert, by the way, in case you haven't seen the movie. Um, but I, I think you see the picture I'm trying to give you with that is you're in a world that is filled with death and your heart is filled with death. And the only possible way that you can survive is you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. You get it on the inside. Y'all, there is no way around this. There is no shortcut to this. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ, you are going to be a learner. There's no way around that. You know what I've discovered over the years? Christians who get serious about God suddenly become readers. And people, even who didn't read before, like I hated reading, they start to read. You're like, well... I'm not a reader. Well, you might need to learn, honestly. Or, or podcasts. You know what? There's some of the greatest teachers in the world that you can just get on their podcast and you can take the benefit of their reading and learning. You can devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. You need to hang around people who do read a lot so that you can learn the words of Scripture. There's, there's no way around that. Christians become learners. It's not something that you discover the inner character within. You got to know the apostles' teaching. Do you have a daily Bible reading plan? 
It, it, it shocks me how many people in our fellowship do not have a plan where they read through the Bible on a day-by-day basis. How do you survive in a world that is filled with lies and deception and a heart that is dysfunctional if you don't have the word of God getting into your heart on a daily basis? It is my means of survival. You're like, well, how, you know, I don't know how you develop a daily Bible reading plan. Summonrdu.com forward slash Bible, okay? There it is. We will tweet it to you. We will email it to you. We will give you a bookmark. I, we'll do whatever it takes to get you reading the Bible every day because you've got to get the Word of God inside of you. There's no possible way for you to survive, none, if you do not devote yourself to the apostles' teaching and learn that Word. Do you memorize Scripture? Do you memorize Scripture? Well, I'm not trying to brag to you guys, but I have a PhD in theology. I study the Bible for a living. I still memorize bunches of Scripture every single week. You want to know why? Because when life comes at me, I don't have time to run and check my concordance and figure out what verses. I need them in my heart. And I started that when I was a kid. It's one of the greatest things my parents ever gave to me. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sit against thee. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereof according to your word. And I just quoted those in the KJV because that's what I read when I was a kid. And that's why I say words like wherewithal, right? <laughs> like what's a wherewithal? I thought this was like a white shirt. No, wherewithal in the KJV means like how or why. It's God's word that got in the heart because there's just no way. How are your kids going to survive if they don't know the word of God? I mean, especially if they go to a school where they're surrounded day by day with friends and teachers telling them the opposite. There's no way for them to survive in a world that's filled with the toxicity of the nerve gas of sin that already exists in their heart if you are not putting the word of God inside of them. uh, I'm going to tell you a story about my family, and I know that's sometimes annoying if I tell you cute stories about my kids, but I've got the mic. So <laughs> my, um, my uh, dad, who goes by Paul Paul, offered to pay my two oldest daughters, who were 10 and 8, this summer $100 each if they would memorize Romans 6. So my 10-year-old, my 8-year-old, eight-year-old memorized Romans 6 over the summer. And this week I told my dad, I, I don't think they did it for the love of the Word of God, just to be honest. I think they did it for $100. Um, I told my dad this week, I was like, let me tell you why it's the greatest $100 you ever spent. Um, about a week and a half ago, we were, I was upstairs in the girls' room. Um, I have a 10, 8, and 5-year-old girl, and they all stay in the same room. And I just finished up the story for the night or whatever, and I'm sitting there, and uh, my youngest daughter, Raya, asked, she's five, a question about heaven, something going to heaven or something like that. So I start to answer. And Allie, who is my eight-year-old, interrupts me and says to Raya, she said, Raya, you know what I never understood about the gospel? She said, she said, when I received Jesus as my Savior, I knew that he had paid for all the sins that I'd committed. But what about the sins that I hadn't committed yet? How were those going to be paid for? She says, I wasn't sure how, how, I knew he paid for the ones in the past, but what about the ones in the future? But Raya, Romans 6.11 says, in the death that he died, he died for sin once for all. and the life that he lives, he lives to God. What that means is that when I trust Jesus, he's not only died for the sins I have committed, he died for the sins that I committed today and the ones that I'll commit tomorrow and the ones that I'll commit for the rest of my life. That's why we trust Jesus one time and he erases our sin and that's why we go to heaven. And I'm looking at her like, <laughs> like, told Ryan, I was like, yeah, what she said right there, that's, that's it. That was unrehearsed. It was uncoached. I never taught her that. It came from reflection on the words of God that she had memorized. How are your kids going to survive when the questions that life presents to them are coming in their face? If the word of God is not in their heart, they will not survive. When life cuts them, they got to bleed God's word. They got to put that word in their heart. It's the only way. Deuteronomy 6 says you put it on the door frames of your house. We take that literally at my house. We have, Veronica has a little board that we put a new verse on it every week. So we are constantly saturating ourselves with scripture. Uh, Awana that we do here, we're actually starting that this week um, here uh, at the Briar Creek campus on Sunday night and some other places too. Um, that is just our way of getting kids to memorize scripture because it is the only way they can survive. Small groups are a tool for you to learn and devote yourself to the apostles' teaching because there you take the words that I'm teaching you and you get into them and you unpack them and you bury them in your heart. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Number two, they were devoted to each other. They were devoted to each other. Christ had given up himself for them, poured out his life for them. So they devoted themselves to one another just like Christ had done. And they did this, get this, 
by meeting in small groups, in homes. I'm not making that up. Look at it. There was this big group of like 3,000, but verse 46 says, day by day, they met in homes. That's us. I'm not manipulating the text, am I? There was a big group. I love the big group. And then there were small groups. The big group's like a battalion, marching orders. It's going to be awesome next week. We're one big army for Jesus, and we're going to do that. But then small groups are where we give ourselves to each other. And by the way, it's not just being in a small group, like that's some you know, legalistic thing. It's what you do in the small group that counts. You look around in verse 44, and you'll see the word together start being repeated. Verse 44, those who believed were together. Verse 46, they attended the temple together. They broke bread together. They prayed together. So the question is not just, are you in a small group? That's a, just a tool. It's just a facilitator. The question is, are you investing in people's lives and opening your life so that they can invest in yours? The question is not just, are you together in a big group in a diverse church? The question is, are you reaching across racial and cultural barriers personally and getting to know those who aren't like you? This was a natural response of the gospel, to the gospel for them. Now, I hear people say, well, I quit going to small group because just, I just wasn't getting that much out of it. Would you look at the way that that's phrased? They devoted themselves. They gave themselves away. The point is not really how much you're getting out of it. The point is you begin to give yourself away. Now, here's the irony. You'll start to get stuff out of it when you give yourself away. It's kind of like a family. My family, I don't participate in my family based on how much I'm getting out of it. I don't like, you know, be like, hey, Veronica, I'm not coming home for family dinner because last night's family dinner was just lame conversation. I was ready to talk about some stuff, but we said we talked about Jake and the Neverland Pirates and, um, you know, Dora, and I just, I just wasn't interested, so I'm going to go eat somewhere else. No, I am devoted to my family, right? And so I give myself to my family. Vacations, I've told you about this before. I had to change the name of vacations in my family to family trips because when I called them vacations, I would come back ticked off at how tired I was. I'm like, that was not a vacation. You got four kids under the age of 10, you're not vacating anything. I told my wife this summer, I was like, if I ever come home after a vacation less tired than when I left, that means I need to repent because I didn't serve my family the way that I'm supposed to. I'm devoted to my family. Now, here's the thing. Being a part of a family is the greatest experience of my life, and I get more out of it than anything else, but it's not because I approach my family like a McDonald's where I'm like, hey, I got to take what I need from this, and if you're not giving me my way, then I'm going to go to Burger King. I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A. No, you go not like a fast food restaurant, you go to give yourself away. And when you give yourself away, that's when you become like Jesus. And that's when you start getting something out of the Christian life. So you need to quit being consumers. You need to start being disciples because there's a huge difference. By the way, maybe this is a great place to stop for a minute and discuss the question of what exactly is a church? What exactly is a church? See, because we have um, people here who disappear around May and then they show back up about now Welcome back. And the, you ask them, like, hey, I've seen you a long time. They're like, oh, and, and this is what they say. They say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, over the summer, my church is the lake. Not my church. I, I go to a different one at the lake, but my church is the lake. I just feel so close to God up there in nature, and that's just where I commune with God. Listen, I ain't against a vacation. And I'm not against you taking occasional Sundays off, but that's not a church. A church is an assembly. It's a group of people that you give yourself to. And so, yeah, I'm glad you commune with God in nature, but he commanded us to assemble. He said, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. You can't give yourself to people if you're not around those people. It's an assembly. We got to, you know, I'll get notes from people who are like, I don't really like the church, but man, I love your sermons. So I just listen to your sermon podcast, and then I discuss it with two or three buddies. That's not a church. And I know you're listening to me right now, okay, because you're listening to the podcast. Normally, I'm talking to the church, and you're listening. Now I'm talking to you. You're not in church. You're not. You've got to devote yourself to a body of people, and that means you get in there with all the messiness. Listen, this is a strong statement I'm about to make here, but you guys don't come here for me to play around. I know that. According to Acts 2, you cannot be a true disciple of Jesus and be disconnected from the church. You can't. How do you devote yourself to each other if you're not even committed enough to be a part of a body of people? Or how about this one? Um, people say, well, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. Hey, newsflash, you can't love Jesus and hate his bride. Like You come up to me and you're like, hey, J.D., I, I really like you, but I just I hate Veronica. We're not going to be friends. 
hey, JD, I want you to come over to my house for dinner, but don't bring that trashy old hag you call your wife. <laughs> We're going to have a problem, right? You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. I'd be like, quit talking about my woman like that. I think Jesus would probably say the same. You're like, well, the church is full of hypocrites. There's room for one more. Why don't you come join up with us, all right? <laughs> Yeah, we got problems, but we're the bride of Christ, and he died for us, and he sticks up for his bride. You cannot love Jesus and hate his bride. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be committed to the church. Now, you're like, are you saying that Christians who aren't, are you saying that there are not Christians who are not in churches? Are you saying that? I'm not saying that exactly, all right? But there are humans without homes, and we call them homeless, and we start ministries for them because that's not healthy. Christians that are not part of churches are homeless Christians, and it's not healthy. And so, yes, we start ministries to bring you in, and we're not content to leave you homeless because Jesus said, if you're going to love me, you're going to love my bride, and you're going to be devoted to each other, period. Number three, they were devoted to God's presence. See verse 42 where it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread? As much as I would like to read that as they were devoted to eating, <laughs> um, that's not exactly what it means. Breaking of bread was a way they talked about communion. It was the Lord's table. And Jesus had promised to be present at the Lord's table in a very special way. He's always present in worship, of course, but in the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 16, 10 says he is present in an unusually powerful way. When you combine that with this sense that every believer had, that they were filled with the Spirit of God, when they came to church, they expected to be in God's presence. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians that the early Christians came to worship service, prayed up, filled with the Spirit of God, ready to hear words from God, and ready to give words of God to others. They came to meet with God. Here's a question. When you come to church, or when you come to your small group, what do you come expecting? You expecting to meet with God? You come with a sense of anticipation? Are you coming here to hear a guy give a decently entertaining religious pep talk? You come in here to hear some music. You come in here to check it out. Well, what are you here for? You come in here expecting to meet with the holy God, the fire of whose presence is now in the Holy Spirit. Are you coming ready to give words of God to others and receive words from God? Do you come with that sense of anticipation? Let me give you a, a few signs that you might not be expecting to meet with God. Now, I'm not judging you. I'm really. I'm not saying these always mean that you're not expecting to meet with God, but if these things are true of you, I think it's at least worth you asking the question. Okay? Coming late, leaving early. I realize life happens. I realize I have four kids. It's hard for us to get on time places. But I and also realize sometimes it's our fault because the parking's a mess. But I just know that for a lot of people, the reason you show up late is because you're not really expecting anything. You're not expecting to meet with God. Here's why I think that. Um, one of our elders has season tickets to the UNC basketball. He's part of the Rams club. Whenever he invites me to go to a game, we always show up two hours early. And you know what we do? We go in a room with about 300 other people in the Rams club, and we eat food, talk about how awesome Carolina is. Everybody's got on their colors, and we're just reveling in the game, getting revved up. If Carolina's rival is playing somewhere, one of the rivals, they'll put it up on a screen so that before you go into the, you know, the, 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 the gymnasium, you're actually watching one of their rivals. One of the greatest experiences I ever had was right before the game that I was going to you know, opened up, Duke was playing. They lost like the second before they opened the doors for us to go in. And so, I mean, Duke loses, and the place just goes ballistic. People are hugging and crying, and, you know, and it's like they were more excited about that than they were about the game they were about to go into. You know, it's like the most awesome moment for a Carolina fan, which I don't take sides publicly from the stage, so I'm not saying it was good for me. I'm just saying <laughs> that's what everybody else was doing, okay? Um, there was a sense of anticipation. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why they would have more excitement about a basketball team than people who are coming to meet with God you wouldn't show up and want to commune with each other and want to get ready and get prayed up in anticipation. I'm about to meet with God. We're leaving early. Yes, I see you. When we, I say every head bowed and every eye closed, there's like six of you stand up and head for the door. And nobody else sees you because their heads are bowed, but I see you. How could I not see you? I'm like, one, two, three, four, five, six. I just see you going. Like, I gotta get to the Golden Corral. I gotta get there. I'm like, really? What? What does that say about your sense of meeting with God when you only want to stick around and respond 
to what you've heard by getting in the presence of God. Yeah, it's your house is on fire and you just got a text message about it. Go home, all right? But otherwise, I'm just curious as to what that tells me about the sense of what you expect when you come. Now, here's one. Not bringing a Bible or nothing to take notes with. No, don't look around. <laughs> you know, don't, don't do that. <laughs> I, I realize that. Listen. I, I got a friend who every time I say this, he sends me an angry email. He's like, I just don't learn that way. I just learn better when I'm looking at you and, you know, not, and nothing in my lap. Okay, fine. There may be a few of you that are an exception to this, but I'd say for a lot of you, it just indicates that you don't come with, really, out of 50 minutes that I'm going to stand up here and open the Word of God to you, there's nothing that God's going to say to you that's worth remembering, writing down, or meditating on throughout the week. Nothing. Nothing. When your boss meets with you, you probably bring a pad and a pen and you write down what he says or she says, don't you? I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, what does that indicate when you don't even bring a copy of the Word of God to see if what I'm saying is coming out of there, and you don't bring a pen to write down what the Spirit of God might be saying to you? It just might mean you're not expecting really to meet with God when you come to church. How about one more? Just in case there's somebody I haven't ticked off yet. <laughs> Standing in the midst of worship with a coffee cup in your hand. There's a lot of things people do in the presence of God in the Bible. Standing with a coffee cup in their hand and a bored look on their face is never one of them. I, listen, I'm not trying, I'm not saying all of you need to put your hands up, but I am saying that there's something about this right here that demonstrates an openness to receive what God has for you that this right here does not. <laughs> right? And I don't want to just turn this into a thing of your posture. I don't want you to start acting. I'm just saying that your posture indicates that some of you have no anticipation of meeting with the Holy Spirit of God, and they were devoted to it. They were addicted to it. They were obsessed by it. And awe came upon every soul. You know what awe means? Verse 43. Awe means this crushing weight. Is that what defines, is that what defines our church? A crushing weight of God's glory? You know how I know when I'm really preaching? It's not when people are yelling at me. Hey, man. I mean, that's great. It's when people are looking up, saying, oh my God. Or they're looking within, saying, I can't believe that God loves me this way, or I can't, I see the sin in my heart. Is that sense of awe what defines our church? Is that sense of awe what defines your small group? Do you come ready for that? With anticipation, prayed up, ready to hear the word of God and ready to speak it to others. Now, in here, only a few of us speak. That's just the nature of a large group. Putting up an open mic in front of an audience this size is like flypaper for the wrong kind of people, right? And if that offends you, you probably are the wrong kind of people, okay? So, so we don't do that in here, but in your small group is a perfect setting for you to come with words of God for others and to receive words from God. Number four, prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They seemed to feel intimately their dependence on God. So they prayed all the time. All the time. Not because they were told, not because they heard sermons on it. It's just natural to them. They felt the crushing weight of what God had called them to. Jesus, remember this? Had given them the largest assignment, and then he left and told them to do nothing but wait until the Holy Spirit came. 10 days is how long they waited. If you count the number between when he ascended on the 40th day and Pentecost, the 50th day, 10 days, they prayed for 10 days and waited. After they prayed, Peter stood up to preach. If you read this sermon, it takes about 10 minutes. They prayed for 10 days, Peter preached for 10 minutes, and 3,000 people got saved. Now, we pray for 10 minutes. I preach for 10 days, and three people get saved. Because all of our zeros in the wrong place. You want to know why? It's because we're too good at what we do. Not really, but we think we are. And we have this sense that we can. And so there's not this sense of desperation they had that, God, you've got to move. And if you don't move, it's all worthless. People that feel that sense of inability naturally pray without needing to be told. You see, that was a spirit that stayed with them the rest of their time. So when one of their people got in trouble in Acts 4, they hit their knees. Before they lobbied Congress, they hit their knees. When they had a financial need, before they organized a building campaign, they hit their knees and said, God, you're the one that's got to provide. When one of their people was being persecuted, when they need boldness, they got on their face and said, God, you're the one that supplies the boldness. Prayerlessness is always a sign that you've lost touch with how dependent you are on the fullness of the Spirit to do what you need to do. The problem is not that you need more self-discipline to pray. No, the problem is that you need more of a sense of how desperate you are on God to do things through you and that you understand that apart from him, you can't do anything. And the analogy I've used with you before is like breathing, right? The least disciplined person in here, whoever it is, the least disciplined person doesn't need to be told and reminded to breathe. You don't need an accountability partner. 
I don't need to be like, hey, do you remember to breathe today? You know, do do that. Try it every like three seconds. Try to do, no. You just do it. You you just breathe because your body craves air. When you crave the power of the Holy Spirit, when you know how desperately dependent you are as a parent, as a spouse, as someone who is witnessing, when we know that as a church, we won't need to be commanded to pray. We'll do it instinctively. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So here, verse 47, you got 3,000 people saved in Peter's first sermon. But now, day by day in the community, people are being saved. They're being saved, watch this, as the church devotes themselves to these four things. Because it, watch, it is the church's devotion to these four things that demonstrates, watch, the power of the gospel and the reality of the spirit that is within them. The spirit of God is invisible, is he not? The kingdom of Jesus is invisible. A friend of mine describes it like this. If you're my age, you remember the superhero when we were a kid, the invisible man? So the invisible man, you couldn't see him, obviously, unless somebody spilled paint on him or if somebody threw a coat over him, right? So my friend says that the generosity and the testimony of the church is like the paint on the invisible Holy Spirit because it shows you the shape and the beauty of Jesus. Jesus is attractive. And when people see Jesus, they're drawn to him. And what the church does is they take their works and they show you the beauty of Christ. There was something about these people that showed you the reality of the spirit that was within them. See that phrase in there, glad and generous hearts? You see that? Glad and generous hearts. It meant that no matter where they were or what they were doing, there was this sense that they had joy. Paul goes to prison. What's Paul do in prison? He sings. Peter goes to prison. What's he do? He sleeps. Singing means you're happy. Sleeping means you're content. They were content and they were happy after their backs had been ripped open with a whip and they're in pain and they're in jail and they're singing and they're content. And that pointed people to the reality of a spirit and a treasure that nobody else could see, but nobody doubted because they saw it in them. And then people said, 1 Peter 3.15, tell me about the hope that is within you because I see it. My, um, let me apologize. This is the second story from my family, but you just have to deal with it. Um, this week, I, I spent some time with my dad, as I referred earlier. And I reflected, I remembered something, um, just as I was talking with him, because it's something he told me that I'll tell you about in a second. But I remembered how, as a child, I mean, I was your typical, you know, um, mischievous kid and, and did a lot of bad things and uh, kind of quiz, you know, cool and skeptical, doubted a lot of stuff. But I reflected on the fact that I never doubted the existence of God. And I remembered why this week. And that's because from the earliest memories I have as a kid, I remember getting up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, if I ever got up that early, I knew exactly where to find my dad. He'd be on his knees with his Bible open, pouring out the needs of my family to God, asking God for strength. And I saw a dad who communed with a God that I could not see. And I saw that God answer prayer. And I saw that God as the source of the strength of what my dad was, the godliest man that I've, I've ever known. I never doubted the reality of the invisible God because I saw the shape of him left and how my father was devoted to certain things. This week, my dad told me we had this conversation and he's retired now. And uh, so I just asked him, I'm like, okay, so you're retired. You don't have your source of income that you used to have. It's social security and you got your pension. Do you, you, y'all have, feel like you have enough money? Without a hesitation, my dad says, oh yeah. yeah. He said, oh, yeah, we, we, we're, we're great. Now, I know for a fact that there are some things that they want to do that he can't do, like move up here is one of the things he wants to do, Um, but he can't do it yet because he can't afford to have two houses at once and he can't sell his other house right now for whatever reason. So I'm like, well, if you, you know, not whatever, you could save money. You don't have all the money you want to do, but he's not even thinking about that. It didn't even cross his mind. Oh yeah, we got one point. He says, you know what I regret though? He says, the thing that I hate most about our new income is we're not able to give away nearly as much as we used to. He said, we still tithe, of course, on the social security and the pension. We still tithe on all that. He says, and we actually do a good bit more than the tithe. He said, but my favorite thing when I had that source of income was just being able to give away stuff to the kingdom of God, to give away your inheritance that was going to come to you. Just give it to others. (laughs) That was just my favorite thing. Um, And I'm sitting here looking at him, 
And I'm thinking, are you doing it again? He is painting for me unintentionally a kingdom that I cannot see. And he's showing me that I wish that I could invest more in this kingdom because this one's not that important to me, but that one is. I've never doubted the reality of the invisible things because I've seen the shape of them in my father. What are your kids seeing about the invisible God from your life? I know what your mouth tells them, but what does your generosity tell them about the reality of the kingdom of God? Because I'm going to tell you this, they see that a whole lot more than you realize they do. They see what is real and what's fiction to you. Not by what comes out of your mouth, but what you do. What do your kids see about your relationship with God? I know you bring them to church, but do they see you struggling with God, communing with God, depending on God, praying to God? Do they see him as the source of your strength? I heard about a girl this week in our church that works with refugees here, and she found out that one of them, they didn't have a bed. She's like, oh, I know where they can get a bed. So she gave them hers. <laughs> you know, so she's sleeping on the floor and they're sleeping on a bed. Now, you don't all have to do that. I'm not saying that's everybody's got to, but see, what you are is they're point, she's pointing to something. And she would say, well, I'm pointing to the God who gave up his place for me. So it just makes sense to me that I give up mine for somebody else. Have you given yourself to these four things? If not, again, summon, I would just tell you, maybe it's because you don't really believe the message. Or you've never been filled by the Spirit because people who believe the message and are filled by the Spirit do this naturally. They believe God came from heaven to save them. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to get the word in their heart. They did it like their lives depended on it because they knew that it did. If you believe that your heart is what God says it is, that it's messed up, if you believe that the world you live in is messed up like, you, like, like he says it does, then you're going to make sure that when you're in college, when you're in high school, and the rest of your life, you're pumping the word of God into you because you can never hope to have a good home, a good marriage, a successful life, never hope to please God unless when life cuts you, you bleed God's word. The question is just, what you, do you believe it? If you believed it, you would do that naturally. You don't even tell you. You devote yourselves to each other. If you believe that Christ gave himself for you, you would. It would come natural to you. Do you, do, you, um, do, do you pray desperately if you believe what the gospel says you do? Do you have so much joy in the Holy Spirit that when life messes you up, you just, you're generous, you're glad, you give stuff away because of the treasure you possess in him? Do you come to church expecting to meet with God because you believe the fire of his presence dwells in his people and you can't wait to hear from your gracious Savior? Are you devoted to the gospel? If you're devoted to the gospel and filled with the Spirit, you'll do all four of these things. Are you devoted to the gospel? Listen, you know, sociologists say that our generation, our culture has a problem with commitment. I actually disagree with that. I'll tell you why. You got a guy who can't keep a job, comes in late, you know, takes random days off, People say, oh, well, he's got a commitment problem. Nope, he don't have a commitment problem. He's just not committed to the job. He's committed to whatever's keeping him from that job, which may be his own laziness or, you know, his hobbies or playing Madden until 3 a.m. That's what he's committed to. He's just not committed to the job. A girl is dating a guy who won't commit to her. Oh, he's got commitment issues. Nope, he don't have commitment issues. He's just not committed to you. He's so committed to himself and his own freedom, and you're messing with that. So that's why he won't commit to you, because he's too committed to himself. So you need to drop kick the dirt bag to the curb and find a real man, all right? That's probably a different sermon for, wow, that's enthusiastic. Um, that's probably a different sermon for a different time. But see, we don't have a commitment issue. We don't have a devotion issue. All of you, listen to me, all of you, you're all devoted to something. You're all devoted to something. Are you devoted to the gospel? If you're devoted to the gospel, it'll show itself in these four devotions. Small groups, I told you, is a great way to apply all of these things. That's where you can get into the Word. That's where you can get to know each other. That's where you can give yourself to prayer. That's where you can give yourself away in ministry. It's where you can meet with God. You say, oh, well, I'm too busy, though. That's just too busy. Really? Maybe you need to rephrase that. I'm just too busy to be a disciple of Jesus. These things are not optional. I'm not saying you have to do it. I'm not trying to be a small group's legalist. I'm just saying maybe you need to ask yourself the question, are you too busy for Jesus? You should at least be honest with yourself if you are. You can't be too busy for the essentials. You say, well, childcare, I got too many kids. <laughs> Me and you both, right? We provide vouchers for childcare. We'll pay for your babysitter. You're like, wow, why do you do that? Well, instead of building a big, huge building with a Sunday school, we figured it'd be cheaper just to pay for everybody's childcare. So that's what we do. 
So we'll give you a vow. We'll pay for your child care. So boom, take that one off your list. Well, I don't know anybody. Well, that's the whole reason we're doing this. You say, well, I just don't see the need. Have you been listening for the past 45 minutes? Well, I'll get to it later. No, you won't. You said that last year, didn't you? Mm-hmm. You just need to do it. Now's the time. You need to take a step of obedience. And you need to say, I'm going to devote myself to these things because I want to be a, a genuine follower of Jesus. Why don't you bow your heads if you would. We're going to end this message and in a different way. We're going to end it by doing exactly what we just studied. We're going to pray. We're going to end this time in prayer. I don't have the ability to word these things up in you. You're going to, we're going to pray and ask God. At all of our campuses right now, I'm going to put on the screen a verse, Acts 2.42. But I want you to pray, except we're going to do it, again, differently. We're going to pray in small groups, groups of two and three, which means in a minute you're going to turn to the people beside you and you're going to pray together out loud for these things. You're going to pray in a little, you know, prayer TP, I guess, three of you. Um, you say, well, I don't really know the people beside me. Well, they don't know you either, right? So, hi, my name's JD. Hi, my name's Jeff. Let's pray, okay? That's how it works. Um, you're like, well, it really makes me nervous to do that. Then just drop your head as low as you can get it. That's a sign of the Summit Church. Don't bother me, okay? We'll respect that. But otherwise, I just want you groups of two and three. You may need to turn around, you know, kind of across the aisle, and I just want you to pray. Pray the words of this verse. I want to get you to pray for two things. The first one is I want you to pray that this would be true of our church. I want you to pray that we would be a church so filled with the Spirit that we would devote ourselves to all those things. I want you to pray for you, your small group if you're in one, your family. I want you to pray that our church, that would be the description of us, devoted to those four things. Would you do that? And then in a minute, I'm going to lead you into the next thing I want you to pray for. So right now, all across all campuses, groups of two and three, praying out loud, hundreds of prayer groups, you do it right now, and then I'll take you to the next thing here in a second. Amen. May the breadth of our outreach never exceed the depth of our discipleship. God, I, your spirit produces these things. I can't do it. So God, let this mark a new day of hungering for you, yearning after you, trusting in you. God, I, I commit these to you. I pray, God, for our congregation. I pray, God, for our small groups. I pray for new people getting into small groups. Let this be a moment, God, that's a game changer for many where they go from consumer to disciple. I pray in Jesus' name. God, on behalf, on behalf of this congregation, God, I pray that your spirit might fill us because you're the only one that can do these things. These things are not worked up by emotion. They're not achieved by resolve. God, may you make us full of the spirit right now. God, may this mark a new chapter in our church's life. May we be devoted, God, to the apostles' teaching, to your presence, to one another, to God, to prayer. God, may the You've grown this church remarkably. May the breadth of our outreach never exceed the depth of our discipleship. God, may your spirit make us a truly a church, a community of disciples. Empower those who need to act on this, to make decisions, to get in a small group, to change their habits in the small group. Do what your spirit does, I pray in Jesus' name. Church Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Now I want you to turn your attention outward. I want you to pray specifically for Church of the Ballpark next week. 
I want you to pray that this week we'd have a chance to engage with and invite people. I want you to call their names out loud to God. God, help so-and-so to come. I want you to pray that the Spirit of God would descend upon that place next week, that there would not be a thing about, wow, what great music, what a neat environment. There would just be, wow, the Spirit of God spoke. And would you pray that God would daily by day add specific names of people who are being saved. You pray in groups of two and three, and then one of our pastors at all of our campuses will come up and he'll close this time of prayer out, and then we'll go back before the throne of God um, one more time before we're dismissed um, in, in, in song. You pray, and then one of our pastors will come.